You're listening to ReachMD, coming to you from Omnia Education's Women Health Annual Visit in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm Tom Wright, and with me today is Dr. Dana Gossett, Division Chief of General Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern Medical Facility Foundation and Associate Professor at Northwestern University. Today, we're discussing Hapsphere and HPV testing guidelines, why the guidelines have changed, and perhaps more importantly, how do you talk to your patients both about the screening changes as well as how do you counsel those who you find to be HPV positive? Welcome to the program. Great. Thanks so much, Dr. Wright. You know, this is something that's been a real challenge over the last several years, and I think that we all are spending a lot of time now talking to patients about the new guidelines, about why they've changed. And many of us have patients who are concerned or even resistant to the idea of less frequent screening or different modalities of screening. So I think with the the guidelines that came out in 2012, the harmonized guidelines from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force and ASCCP and ACOG, the, one of the changes that was most difficult for patients and I think physicians to cope with was the change in screening frequency. Um, we have for many years screened people with PAPs annually and patients come to expect that. And so I get a lot of pushback from patients saying, well, why can't I have my annual pap smear? Why are you taking that away? Don't you want to take care of me anymore? Is this some kind of managed care thing where it doesn't get paid for? I'll pay for it myself. I think I need it. And so really, I think our job as primary care doctors is educating patients about why that has changed. And really that this isn't based on cost or changes in healthcare coverage. It's about the data. It's about the fact that we know cervical disease is a slow-moving process and that with modern techniques, we don't need an annual screen, that that's vastly over-screening people who are at low risk for disease. And of course, we're talking about the average risk woman here. The other thing that has been a real struggle is talking to people about HPV testing and why that's important. And it's particularly important as we move towards perhaps using more primary HPV screening as opposed to pap smear as the primary modality. But even in the co-tested patient, you have to cope with the HPV positive patient and explain to her what has happened. And this is, in her mind, sort of a double whammy because you're telling her, A, that she has a sexually transmitted infection, which is, of course, devastating. But you're also telling her that that infection puts her at risk for cervical cancer. And so that's equally, or if not more, terrifying. So I think the things that are important to communicate to the patient who's HPV positive, first is prevalence that 80% of us get exposed to HPV at some point in our lives. And the fact that we happen to have picked it up on the test that we did this week um, may be just coincidence. And it may be that if I'd screened her six months later, her immune system would already have cleared that and we would never have known. And that for the most part, women who acquire HPV do clear it and it doesn't have clinical consequences. So it's important to communicate that yes, they have this, it's important that we know it because it means they're at elevated risk for developing dysplasia and cancer, but for most people, it's not gonna be something that threatens their, their survival. That said, with the current recommendations for primary HPV screening and for using the, the COBUS test, which allows us to discriminate 16 and 18 from other high-risk subtypes, that actually is gonna help us in our counseling and help us as clinicians to know who really is at risk and who do we wanna focus on. So for those women who are 16 and 18 positive, I think we can't be quite as reassuring because we know they actually have a fairly high prevalence of dysplasia, but it's important for us to know it because that means those are the women we can really target for additional surveillance 
for example, starting with colposcopy. For the women who have the non-16, non-18 subtypes, they really can be reassured that the likelihood that this is going to lead to dysplasia is quite low. It's not zero, and they need additional follow-up, so they don't get to go on these extended interval screenings like people who are completely negative. But we can follow them up in a year because the likelihood is still that they will clear their HPV. And we only start to get more concerned about them if at a year they haven't cleared their HPV because it's persistence of their HPV that we're more concerned about as opposed to an incident finding of HPV. That's fabulous. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Tom Wright, and I'm speaking with Dr. Dana Gossett, Division Chief of General Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern Medical Facility and Associate Professor at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. We're talking about pap smear and HPV testing guidelines, why the guidelines have changed, and how to talk to patients about the changes. One of the things that I hear routinely, Dana, is concern about the extended interval from clinicians. They say, if I tell a woman to come back at five years, how is she going to know when it's five years? Will she have left town? How can I be sure that my patients will actually use the recommended intervals? I think that's a great question. I think we all worried when we went to these longer screening intervals that what patients were going to hear was, I don't want to see you for another three years or five years, as opposed to, we don't need to do a pap smear or cytology or HPV testing for three to five years. And really, those are two different things. Um, because there are other kinds of health care that women may need in the interim. So they still need their lipids and they still need their physical exam, perhaps. The USPTF is still debating that. Um, they may need STI screening. They may need their contraception renewed or surveilled. So um, what I have started doing when I send out notes in our electronic health record or letters to patients about their pap smear result is instead of giving a specific screening interval recommendation in that follow-up, I say, see you in a year. So I really reinforce the fact that I want them to come back annually and that I should be keeping track of the frequency of paps. That said, if somebody then moves outside of my system and is no longer seeing me for care, there is a good chance that they are going to get overscreened. I think we have a much bigger challenge in most women who get care with over-screening than under-screening. And I do this myself. When someone comes in and I've never met them before and they've had their care somewhere else and I can't get records, I'm much more likely to just do a pap because I don't know how credible she is, how reliable she is, don't know if she really got her results and knows they were normal. So I honestly think that the bigger challenge with not having an integrated health record across the country is that we probably all over-screen a great deal more than that people go years and years without screening. Certainly as someone who works in a large cytology lab and looking at the histories, the screening histories of individuals, there's a huge amount of over-screening. Patients are getting co-tested at yearly intervals. And the data is, is that detecting HPV at frequent intervals isn't actually terribly predictive of a woman's risk. Could you speak to that? So I think that someone with negative co-testing, meaning a normal PAP and a negative HPV, we know that the negative predictive value of that is very good, meaning the likelihood that she is going to have significant dysplasia in the next several years is very, very low. So repeating that screening annually is a huge waste of resources. Um, 
and is not likely to add much additional benefit, meaning we're not going to pick up a lot of women with real disease. And we do have to think about what everything in the healthcare system costs. These are not cheap tests. So having a cytopathologist read a pap smear, doing a molecular test like HPV testing, these have significant cost. And so given that they really don't provide benefit, it just seems very hard to justify. I think we can debate cost-benefit ratios in a lot of situations, but given that co-testing is so good, it seems absurd to be repeating that yearly. Right, and also the HPV tests that we currently use actually aren't designed to detect every HPV-infected individual. Many women have low level of HPV and the test will be negative because the cutoff values are set very high. How does that factor into what happens if you test a woman on a yearly basis? Well, unfortunately, you know, that does mean that sometimes you get varying test results and it's just not clear what the clinical significance of that is. So for example, if you have somebody who has a low-level HPV infection, um, she may screen positive one year, negative the next year, negative the next year, positive again. And you know, as clinicians, we really think about the HPV test as a dichotomous test. It's a yes or a no, because that's what gets reported by the laboratory. It's either positive or negative, and that's what we communicate to our patients. You do have this or you don't have it. And unfortunately, it's not really that simple, because as you point out, there is a threshold at which the lab will call a test positive, and below that, even if there's HPV present, it's going to be called negative. The reason that the lab cutoffs are set that way really has to do with correlation with clinical disease. So very low-level HPV levels are unlikely to result in dysplasia and cancer, and so the importance of detecting that is low, and in fact, if anything, it'd probably cause more distress to the patient without really any added benefit. So sometimes you get yourself in a situation where you are rescreening too frequently. You have these flipping positives and negatives. And what that probably means is somebody who does indeed have HPV, but at a very low level where most of the time her immune system is adequately controlling the HPV. And that means that her risk for development of dysplasia is quite low because her immune system has responded appropriately. With that, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Dana Gossett. We've been talking about HPV and screening for cervical cancer, how we adjust intervals, and how we deal with our patients who have positive test results. I'm Dr. Tom Wright, and you've been listening to ReachMD at the Women's Health Annual Visit in Boston, Mass. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series, and thank you for listening.